All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word in depth. Um, what a privilege, what a joy it is for us. And uh, it's a hard topic, and so we pray that you would be with us, uh, guide us, teach us, warm our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so today the topic is, uh, we're looking at some, you guys can just leave right there. Thank you, thank you guys. Um, we're looking at uh, Psalm 109. Psalm 109, along with uh, Psalm 69, are uh, the two most famous, uh, most extended, um, what are known as imprecatory psalms. Actually, um, uh, there are uh, uh, a great many imprecatory portions um, throughout the psalms, probably a dozen or so, but this is the most extended portion, and imprecatory simply means curses. Or the word I really like is malediction. I like malediction. We don't use that word. Uh, malediction is the flip side of benediction. Bene meaning good. So benediction is a good word. Malediction is a bad word, right? It's calling down destruction, death, curses, right? And so Psalm 109 is the most extended portion. So rather than reading the whole thing, I wanted to just cut to the chase and read the, uh, the, the maledictory parts. We'll read the other parts in context, but let's just start with um, verse, uh, so it's verses 6 through 15 is really the, um, 6 through, what is it? 15, right? Yes. Um, our, our is the really meaty stuff. Um, and uh, I, I was, re- in preparation, I was reading C.S. Lewis's thoughts on imprecations and he says that you can't help but to almost chuckle when you read this section uh, because it is so like vicious and strong. But just the things that are being wished for is uh, um, is uh, we're almost not used to it. All right, so let's let's read through it. Um, Dan, can you? How about let's just go down the line and each read a verse, and then we're going to break it down the meaning. So six. I'm sorry, Mary Ann. Let there be no trusting kindness to him, nor any to pity his father with prison. May his posterity be cut off, and may his name be blotted out in present generations. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may be cut off that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. All right, good. All right, so let's break this down. What is exactly being meant here? So let's start with verse 6. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. Uh, What is this basically saying in sort of like common terms, you know, your own paraphrase? What is this basically saying? If it seems patently obvious, say please say what is obvious. It's not supposed to be that deep. Uh, yes, someone is leveling accusations. Now, there are truthful accusations and there are false lying accusations, right? Why do you think it's lying accusations? I would agree with you. 
Yes. So uh, one of the principles of uh, Psalms is that um, each line is in parallel, right? So this is A, this is B. These two mutually inform each other, right? They're related, connected. And so wicked man and accuser are in parallel, which lets you know that this is not a good accuser. This is a wicked accuser. So the psalmist is saying, let there be false accusation. Let, let, a, let a man with false lying accusations stand there accusing him, you know, uh, uh, blasting him, right? Verse 7, uh, when he is tried, let him come forth guiltily. Let his prayers be counted as sin. So what is that saying? If it seems, again, obvious, just go for what is obvious. Ashley looked up. That's the that's the kiss of death. What, what do you think? <laughs> yeah. So what what's the what's the setting that he he's he's talking about the psalmist? Huh? Trial. Trial. Yes. So he wants this guy to be in court, right? He wants this guy to sit there. Probably this false lying accuser witness, you know, testifying against him. And, and he wants the result to be guilty, right? Um, and notice, again, it's in parallel, right? Let his prayer be counted as sin. Why would that be in parallel to this whole courtroom scene? Or maybe another way to put it is, what does that tell us about the courtroom scene? Any thoughts? This requires a little bit more speculative analysis, but... Neat. Any guess as to what kind of court this would be? Therefore, huh? In just um, why prayer? Why? How does prayer inform that? A religious court. A religious court. Okay, keep going. So the way I look at it, uh, yeah, it could, it could, it could definitely just be a, a human court, right? But the way I look at it is he's asking actually for this guy to be tried before God, right? This is a heavenly court. And because he's saying, let his prayer be counted as sin. And therefore, when he says, let him f- come forth guiltily, what is he asking for? Judgment upon or punishment? Yeah, divine judgment, which would be what? Death, essentially, separation. Death, yeah, keep going. Hell. Eternal damnation. He's asking for his eternal damnation. <laughs> That's exactly what I think this is going on, okay? He's asking for his damnation, okay? Verse 8. Um, and there, there's a couple of other clues that... Uh, that tell me that verse 7, that's the way we're supposed to interpret it. But verse 8, may his days be few, may another take his office. All right, very easy. What is that saying? May his days be few, meaning, yeah, let him die, right? Don't let him live too long. And then may another take his office and his and someone else take his job, right? <laughs> um, verse 9, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. What is that saying? Yeah, he would die. <laughs> right? Um, punishing his family, too. Yeah, it's a punishment to his family, right? Like, let his children be orphans. <laughs> like, if you ever want to say to someone, die, you don't just say die, just say, may your children be orphans. Oh, that means you want me to die, right? Um, 
Uh, let's skip to verse 11. We'll, we'll swing back to verse 10. May the creditor seize all that he has. May children plunder. By the way, we can't just read this as passionate. I feel like you have to like read it with like, ah, right? So verse 11, may the creditor seize all that he has. May tr- strangers plunder the fruit of his toil. What is that saying? Everything he has gets repossessed or stolen. Yeah. That may, him co- may he come to complete and utter financial ruin. Right? Um, all of his possessions gone, and and then like these strangers, like burglars or hoodlums, come in and just sweep everything away. Swing back up to verse nine, uh, ten. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. Okay, what does that say? So not only does he fall into financial ruin, but then what happens? Like his home collapses. They have no domicile. They have no domicile, good, and? His children are forced to beg. Yes, his children are forced to beg. So this financial suffering extends not only to him, but now to his children, his family that survives his death, right? And they're suffering. Because look, they don't just like beg, they have to wander and beg, right? They have to go far from their home. Verse 12, let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. Um... So even as they're going about begging for food, what does he say? He says, let no one even show them mercy. Right? His poor, starving children are begging, and he says, let, let everyone just pass them by, walk past them. Um, verse 13, may his posterity be cut off, may his name be blotted out in the second generation. Okay, what is that saying? His line is ended. His line is ended because posterity means children, right? In fact, he's very specific. When will this? When will his line end? After his children. Yes. So basically, he's saying, "May this guy die. May his fatherless children, may his orphan children suffer and beg, and then may they die, and and have no children, right?" So he's asking for his uh, his lineage, his line to completely die out. Which you have to understand, in the ancient world, this was like, that's like, that's that's the most dastardly thing that could happen to you. I mean, for you to die, that's not as bad if your children go on and prosper and live and carry on your line. But he's saying, and they suffer, and they die carrying on, and they don't have children, right? Um, verse uh, 14, May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. All right, so what is that saying? His sins? It's actually focused on his parents' sins. Yeah. So he's saying his father's evil, dastardly sins, his mother's sins, remember them and punish this man for his parents' sins, right? So it's actually like generationally, right? If, if, If this is the man, right? His parents, right? Their sins visited and then his children... May uh, may this is the most terrible graph, but um, <laughs> you understand it goes both ways, right? The generational curse is like standing upward, outward, downward, right? Um, and then where are we? Verse f- uh, fifteen. Uh, 
let them be before the Lord continually that he, the Lord, right, may cut out, cut off the memory of them from the earth. And so this is why I say I think this man is asking for his damnation, the psalmist. It's because this word cut off is actually a very technical word. It means to be taken out of the people of God. It means, so this man is an Israelite, right? And so may he be ejected out of the people of God, out of Israel. May he not have any of the benefits of the covenant of God's love. May he be damned. May he go to hell. May his children be perish. May his parents' sins be visited upon him. May his sins be visited upon his children. And may his posterity end. And then they die suffering economic privation. That's the song. All right. So we're going to sing this song now. <laughs> Um, so what do we do with this psalm, right? I mean, a lot of people have huge problems with this psalm, this imprecatory psalm, right? Because it's full of cursings <coughs> and maledictions. Um, and so, if you flip the page, right? All of you guys are so solemn. <laughs> I said, C.S. Lewis says you're supposed to read this with a little bit of a chuckle, but <laughs> I, I didn't really convey the humor. Um, how do we reconcile this psalm, so top left, with Christian love, right? Jesus said, remember... You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? So Jesus cites this principle of retaliation, right, of revenge. He says, you you know this principle of revenge, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And so a lot of people say, how do we understand this psalm in light of Jesus' command to love your enemies? Your enemies are people... It's not just like, you know, uh, people who annoy you. These are people who want to kill you. People who, like, you know, want to do terrible things to you, but love them. Lay down your life for them. How do we understand this psalm in light of that? Um, So I'm going to walk through five explanations that I hope will be satisfying to you. But before we start there, I forgot to mention one more thing. If you go back to the psalm itself, go back to verses 6 to 15, um, is there one thing that kind of disturbs you particularly about this aspect? And I'm just going to like point to this. Is there one thing that particularly disturbs you about the imprecations, the, the maledictions? Yeah, well, we'll get to the why. It's not necessarily fair. Why? It's not... Why? You're not necessarily being punished for your own sins. Uh-huh. You're, you're being held responsible for somebody else's wrong. Yes, yes. I think to most Americans, this would immediately strike us as unfair and wrong. Because it's, it's one thing to say, I hate you, die. But you're also saying, I hate your children too. May they suffer and may they die. Why sh- should the children who are innocent of the father's sins, why should they suffer, right? So is anyone else thinking this too, right? If you're thinking this, it is because you are an American individualist. Um, You have to understand the biblical worldview, which is that um, you are not your own, but you belong to your family. So this is actually a very realistic way to understand things. Um, We we as Americans think, oh, I'm by myself. Everything that uh, I believe and who I am is just for me. It has nothing to do with my parents. It has nothing to do with my children. But it's absolutely not the way the, the biblical worldview thinks. And let me just quote you. I didn't print it out. I'm sorry. But let me just quote, quote you Exodus 34. Um, it, it speaks about the character of the Lord, right? The Lord, uh, a God merciful and gracious. And then let me just skip down. Uh, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Um 
And and so the biblical idea is always is that sin is like um, it's like let's say this is a, a lake, right? Sin is like this large boulder that you drop, and then it has shock waves, right? And it disturbs the entire pond. Everyone around you is affected by your sin, um, even though you're the one who did it, and the others didn't do it, because the biblical worldview is a representational world, meaning um, everyone is not their own agent, but everyone is represented. Everyone is part of this community, this group, and there's one representative, and that what he does affects everybody else. By the way, this is the gospel. How is that articulating the gospel? Can anyone? Oh, <clears throat> sorry. Um, through one man's disobedience, we're all condemned, right? But through one man's obedience, we're all saved, right? That's correct. So if you object to this, Right? Your objective is you don't believe the gospel. Because this is the gospel. One man, were you there on the cross? Did you obey the commandments? No, Jesus did it. He's your representative because you're connected to him. You're part of his community. What he does counts to you. That's completely unfair. That's the gospel. But in the same way, what your parents do affects you. I think we all believe this. I mean, we all know this in a realistic sense. If your father's rich, most likely you're rich too. Why? That's not fair. How come? How come you get how come you get your, your dad's money? Give me your dad's money, right? If your dad is poor, most likely you are poor. That's just the reality. That's realism. That's just natural. Anyways, I don't I don't want to spend forever on this. Any quick questions on this idea of a generational curse? Alright, so let's go on to the explanation. So flip back over. Number one, how do we understand the imprecations? Uh, number one, this is emotional realism. Um, it is not good to pretend that we don't feel negative emotions. I think in general, I, I remember reading a blog recently about somebody who went through a tragedy. And this person was a Christian, and this person was um, just you know flowing with uh, praise for God and just positive thoughts and how this is a wonderful uh, 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 providence of God in the end. And I think that was a, a great testimony on this person's part, you know, a great deal of faith. But I think in general, like where, like I think we're almost afraid of negative emotions, right? Like anger, bitterness, sadness, depression. These are not emotions that we want to face or acknowledge or even articulate. I think this is why the Psalms are wonderful aid and help to us. Because the Psalms guide us through our emotions. And therefore, the Psalm says there's anger. There's thoughts of retaliation, and um, if you if you look at verse uh, uh, four, we're going to get to there again. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. Right? This the psalmist is processing his angry thoughts, and so that's the first thing, right? That this is emotional realism, um, 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 and it's not good to suppress them or hide our emotions. Number two. Anger at evil is a good thing. So let me read you my little line here. The absence of anger in the face of evil is itself an evil. Um, if you're not angry at something, you know what? It, if you're never angry at anything, it means that you're not human, right? If you hear about some terrible injustice and you're like, I, I'm, no, I'm, I'm okay, you're blasé, you're just all calm, you just want to shake that person. What's wrong with you? Don't you care? Don't you... So basically, anger and love are not opposite. Anger and love are together, because the more you love something, the more you'll be angry about something. Okay? Um, 
I'm running through these because we're going to get to the meat of it. Number three, and this is the meat of it. This is the cry for vindication. So let me write this <coughs> down because this is very important. Um, what does vindication mean? They were doing SAT vocabulary words. Whereas, what does vindication mean? Justified. Vindication means retribution. No. <laughs> that's a that's a further level analysis. <laughs> 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 what does vindication mean? Who who who? Who remembers study for the SAT <coughs> vocabulary words? Huh? Huh? <laughs> redeem? Did you, did you say redeem? That's it's, 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 if, if, if this is the word, you, you guys are just like, you know, shooting around. What does vindicate mean? Exonerate. Exonerate? Okay. That you just gave me another <laughs> another tough word, <laughs> Mr. Doctor. Justify, yes, but that's another tough word. Give me, give it to me in the most simple. Explain it to Judah, huh? No, just to like to to be like pardoned. Pardoned, yeah. Forget, no, not forgive. To pay back? No, no, not pay back. There's no payback. Ignore, ignore <laughs> what I wrote, because that's the second level of analysis. All right, the Vindigan means... <laughs> write it all down since you don't know, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> to be proved right. Okay? That's what vindication means. Okay? So... Um, this person has been, uh, and we're going to get to it, this person has been accused of wrongdoing. And this person is calling for vindication, meaning he is calling, he's asking to be exonerated, to be declared innocent, to be declared in the right. Right? So imagine someone says to you, you know, you dirty monster, you stole my car. And you're like, no, I didn't. You know, and, and, and so you go to the video surveillance technology and say, this will vindicate me. What does that mean? It means that you, this video will prove that I'm right when this other hoodlum breaks into the car. Ah, oh, it's not me. See, I'm right. I, I'm innocent. Okay? So let's look at the context then. Verse 1. And I'll just read it for you for the sake of time. To the So it's, it's an the very top line, to the choir master of Psalm of David. So this is David, okay? So David is calling for vindication. He says, be not silent, O God of my praise. This is a very, very important... In fact, if I were to give this psalm a title, I would call it Be Not Silent. We're going to get back to this. Be not silent. This is what David is asking for, okay? We'll talk about what that means. For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues... They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Now, there are several things that um, this passage tells us. Number one, um, it tells us that this person who is, who is leveling accusations is in David's inner circle. I don't know why I'm putting well, yeah, I should put it there. David's inner circle. Um, 
there are a couple of clues as to why we know this. Um, if you look at verse 4, it says, In return for my love, they accuse me, right? So this is somebody David loves, right? David doesn't love somebody from afar. This is somebody very close to David, right? If you look at, for, for example, verse 8, um, it says, May his days be few, may, may another take his office. Uh, if you look at uh, other translations, it says, May another take his job, you know? That's the, um, the message translation, which, you know, it's, it's good. But I think it takes away from this idea that this person is in high office. David is the king. This person is in his inner, is, is, is in his inner council. This person is a top advisor, top administration official. Does that make sense? Okay. So this is this person is in David's inner circle. The second thing is that um, this person has betrayed David, right? So let me just write that. Betrayal. It's a profound betrayal. Because if you look at verse 4 and 5, in return for my love, they accuse me. And then verse 5, they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. So this is, this is someone in, in David's inner circle who he loves. This is David's close friend, right? This is, this is one of his trusted, trusted advisors. And this person has stabbed David in the back. This is a deep betrayal, okay? And then the third thing you should, you should know is that this person is leveling false accusations. Um, verse 2 to 3, it says, right, lying tongues, wicked and deceitful mouths, right? So we're not 100% sure about the exact situation, but we know a situation in David's life when Absalom, his son, was staging a coup against David. We know that some of David's advisors switched alliances, betrayed David, and switched over to Absalom, calling for Absalom to be king. And what they must have been doing is they must have been going around the court whispering lies, accusations, uh, kind of like conspiring against David. We need to kill David. This is a bad king. And so this is what David is talking about, right? Someone who has completely stabbed him in the back. Um, and he's calling for David's death. Because if you look at verse 20, it says, um, May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, and then of those who speak evil against my life. So they want David to die, okay? So David is saying, Vindicate me. This guy is going around lying against me, leveling accusations against me. He has betrayed me. And therefore, uh, to ask for vindication um, necessarily means uh, retribution. So this is where some of you guys were citing the word. Retribution. Okay. So David's saying not only to be proved right, but he's asking for retribution. What is retribution? SAT word again. Who got it right the last time? Neiman. What do you what do you think? What's a retribution? Explain it to my two, explain it to my three year old boy. No. Revenge? That's a difficult word too. He doesn't know revenge. Is it payback? Pay payback. Pay pay Very good. <laughs> do it back. Right? Um now, why does vindication necessarily mean retribution? Why can't you just be proved in the right? Right? Like when you're in the court, why can't you just say, I'm innocent? And then nothing has to happen to my false accuser, right? Um, and this is my answer. Uh, two, two reasons why it has to be uh, uh, retribution. Number one, um, what did I write? Oh, the accuser has to be put to shame. 
shame. All right. So we see that in verse 28 and 29. Look with me there. Uh, let them curse, but you will bless. This is all the way at the bottom right-hand corner. Um, let them curse, but you will bless. They will arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. All right, so let's go back to the courtroom scene, right? David is being accused by this guy lying through his teeth. For David to be proved in the right, necessarily it means that the accuser has to be shown to be a liar, right? So in effect, what David is saying is, God, prove that I'm right. Vindicate me. But that logically necessarily means, God, show everybody this guy's a liar. When you say, like there's two ways to say it, right? You could say, God, vindicate me. And you can also say, God, show he's a liar. When you say, show he's a liar, what is that? It's a curse, right? That's a malediction. So you're asking for this person to be shamed. Does that make sense? It has to be. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot say, God, vindicate me, but let nothing happen bad to this guy who's lying through his teeth about me. Does that make sense? So therefore, vindication means retribution. It has to be. It has to be. Point number two, vindication means justice against evil. This accuser is evil. And David is calling down justice against this person. Um, let's go to verse 16, right? And I'm going to read this whole section slowly, bit by bit. Top right-hand column. Um, for he did not remember to show kindness, but he pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted and put them to death. Right, so this guy not only is accusing David wanting to kill David, but this guy is also a, 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 a hood, he's a criminal. This guy is just wrecking all kinds of havoc. Um, and and therefore, the, 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 the justice that David is calling for, if you look at verse 16, is, wait, I gotta remember what I wrote, ah, is, is reciprocity. See, this, this is, today you guys are gonna learn a lot of words. Reciprocity. All right, what is reciprocity? <clears throat> we're, we're, we're bored by Neiman's answer, so no Neiman this time. What is reciprocity? Yes. Of a what? Yeah, something. You don't have to go to the income, right? Yeah, so reciprocity simply means this for that, right? So, you know, if, if somebody does two against you, you do two against them. If somebody does three against you, you cannot go crazy <laughs> and overboard and go five, right? You punch me, you pull out the knife and you stab me, right? <laughs> That's not reciprocity, right? Um, so what David is calling for when he's calling for justice <clears throat> is reciprocity. How do we know this? Verse 16, he did not remember to show kindness. If you go back to... Uh, verse 12, right? Let let um, let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any pity to his ch fatherless children. I just love that. Your fatherless children. 
<laughs> um, but so this guy didn't show kindness, and so David says, "Let none kind, no kindness be shown to him." What is that? That's reciprocity. Is that unfair? No, that's completely fair. Um, verse uh, the next line, but he pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted. That word pursued. That's the ESV translation, which is fine. I like the NIV translation, which is um, hounded. The word has both aspects. What is that imagery telling us? He hounded the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. Asha, you have a dog. (laughs) You don't have a hound, do you? No. Who knows what a hound does? <laughs> I mean, what's the special skill of a hound? Smell, right? So, okay, so imagine this imagery. Here's this poor person. He's running. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, right? And then what does a hound do? It's been like two days. You're like running. I feel safe. The hound can get you. Because the hound smell, picks up your scent and chases you. And so when you're being hounded, what does that mean? It means you're being pursued. Even as even though you're, you're, you're going to the far stretches of the world, you're being hounded, you're being chased, you're being pursued, right? So that's the imagery. This guy did this to the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. It's, it's not like he's like, you poor people, ah. Right? The poor is like, ah, run, run. He's like, after them, you know? Find them, wherever they're hiding, get them. Um, and then therefore, verse 10, okay? That's the, the, what's the reciprocity? May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. What is that? That's reciprocity. What he did to others, may it be done to him. And remember, you are not your own, you are your family, but may it be done to his children. Because to be done to his children is being done to him. Does that make sense? And then it says, uh, uh, he was putting them to death. Therefore, verse 8, may his days be few, um, may his children be fatherless. Right? He killed others. May he be killed himself. Okay? Uh, verse 17. Um, the other thing about reciprocity, and this is, I'm not just giving you like, um, in a, in a, in a, I can't even think here. Uh, there, there, there's like, it's called word groups, where they're all like clustered meanings. I'm giving you a word group here. There's another word I want to introduce. Proportionality, which is very much related to reciprocity. But the kind of reciprocity we're talking about is very much proportional. It is never in excess. It is always tit for tat, right? Um, so if you look at verse 17, he loved to curse, let curses come upon him. Right? He curses others, so now I'm, re- I'm showering down those same curses on him. He did not delight in blessing, may it be far from him. The word blessing is always what? It's not just like blessings, you know, like money. <laughs> That's never the biblical understanding of blessing. What is blessing in the Bible? What's like, what's the deep blessing of the Bible? Harry. Closest of God. Yes, God, relationship with God, right? He did not delight in blessing, therefore, may it be far from him. He, he hated God, therefore he says, so then, so be it. May he go to hell. May he be damned, right? Um, verse 18, 
Uh, what am I reading here? Okay. Um, he clothed himself with cursings as his coat. Now, that's an interesting image. Coat. What do you think that imagery is getting across? He clothed himself with his, with his cursings as a coat. Holy smokes. How did the time go by so fast? <laughs> I'm like a third of the way through my lesson. All right. Oh, wow. Oh, Nelly. Okay. Oh, man. Let's go to the Jesus part. <laughs> oh, I'm like in shock right now. Oh, this is so sad. Oh. Okay. All right. Woe is me. Ignore the coat. Well, coat, I was going to just say coat is a protective coat. Anyways, um, so David is calling down judgment upon this man, all right? So that's vindication. And then there it says, the next line, it says, um, therefore, this is not a personal vendetta, but a measured cry for justice. I think what people find offensive is they think, oh, this is some petty personal vendetta, right? Like, I'm so angry, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. Is that what David is doing? I think the answer is no. If you actually read the life of David, David is not a petty, personal person. He's always reserved. He's always measured. He's always careful to exact the true justice of the Lord. And so this is a cry for the justice of God, okay? Um, does that completely answer things? No. So this is also a cry for salvation. And I, 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 I wish I could go into this so much more. But to be saved is also means to be rescued from your enemies. And I think the great example of this is the Exodus. When Israel was going through the wilderness and they were crossing the Red Sea, they were being saved by God. But do you guys remember what else happened on the Red Sea crossing? Something else happened. So here's the Red Sea, right? Here's Israel crossing. But what else happened? They, they safely traversed the ocean, the waters. And then what happened? Egyptians have to die. Yes! The Egyptians are pursuing... And these guys want to kill the Israelites. They want to, they hate God. They want to destroy God's people. So as the Israelites cross through safely, the Egyptians pursue them, and then the waters come crashing down and drown them. They're destroyed. <coughs> Salvation always means not only rescue for yourself, it also means retribution. It means destruction. It means um, death for your enemies. So when David is calling for salvation, right, let me read to you a uh, verse... Um, Verse 26, David says, Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. That word steadfast love is the word chesed. Um, does anyone know what chesed is? It has, actually has a cake sound, but the cake is kind of, it's a guttural. Chesed is covenant love, right? So this is the love that God has for Abraham. And remember Abraham's promise, right? Uh, I have it there, Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We sometimes forget that second part. I will bless you, and anyone who curses you I will curse. Right? That's God's covenant love. So David says, remember your covenant love for me. The love that you gave to Abraham, to Jacob, to Isaac. Love me. Which means destruction for my enemies. Alright? Now, that doesn't completely satisfy the answer. Number four. This is ultimately Jesus' song, The Accuser Betrayer is Judas. That's the answer. Right? How can we how, how can we deal with this song? This is Jesus' song. And this false accuser, remember the false <coughs> accuser? He's what? What are some of the attributes? He's in the inner circle. He betrayed, and he's going around lying. 
seeking his death, right? That's Judas. Um, and how do we know that? Let me read you Acts one fifteen. Um, this is Peter right be- right after the ascension, right before the Pentecost. Right before Pentecost. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. I'm just going to skip around. Verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So let me just say something here. He's going to quote Psalms. uh, Psalm. He's actually going to quote two Psalms, the two imprecatory Psalms, by the way, right? But in, in quoting Psalm 109, what does he say? He's saying this was written by the Holy Spirit. It's a prophecy telling us about Jesus and telling us about Judas, right? Judas is the ultimate betrayer. And then skip all the way down to verse 20. For it is written in the, in the book of Psalms, skip down to the last line, let another take his office, right? So ultimately, Judas is this person with an office. He's a disciple. And therefore, may another take his office. Do you guys remember, quick Bible quiz, who took Judas's office? Matthias, there you go. So, this, so the the apostles cite this verse, Psalm sixty nine, uh, Psalm one hundred nine, as reason why Judas should be replaced with Matthias, right? Because Judas is the betrayer, and therefore, Jesus. Next line here in bold. Jesus is the ultimate innocent victim described in verses twenty two to twenty five. Uh, let's read that because I think that's important. Uh, let me read it. For I am poor and needy. And my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gone with no fat. I am, I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. So, so you know, David, we say to David, oh, David, you're exaggerating things. You know, David says, I feel like a shadow. You know, I feel like like I'm being shaken. I feel like I, I'm, I'm being destroyed. I feel desolate. But ultimately, it's the son of David who is singing this. This is Jesus Christ crying out on the cross. He's singing. This is Jesus' description. And therefore, look with me to verse 26. Jesus cries out, Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Now we're really shaken. Because Jesus says, Remember your covenant love. Save me. Vindicate me. Rescue me. Was Jesus rescued? Remember I said that at the beginning of the psalm, it's called, Be Not Silent. David is saying, God, don't be silent. Vindicate me. Exact your retribution. Don't be, don't, be, don't be distant. Don't be far away. Don't forsake me, God. But what happened on the cross? I have a quote there for you. Mark 15. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus experienced the silence of God so that we would never experience the silence of God. That's the gospel. All right? So that's ultimately about Jesus. Number five, can Christians ultimately sing this song? Um, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but in medieval times, they would take the imprecatory psalms, especially Psalm 109, 169. And you know the psalms were meant to be sung. They would sing this as a battle hymn, <laughs> as they went into battle, right? So can we sing this, right? And I thought about this, I wrestled about this for a long time, and here's my answer. No, if we have in mind our personal enemies. So no vindictiveness. Um, so you have a coworker. This co- you hate this coworker. This coworker annoys the hell out of you. You cannot sing Psalm 109 about appointing a wicked man against them. <laughs> Let an accuser stand at it. May his fatherless children wander and beg, right? Because that is, you're just self-seeking, right? You're just defending yourself. You're just desiring, you know, it's just petty and small-minded and it's not big-hearted. But rather, 
Uh, yes, if you're singing about this in terms of injustice, in terms of evil, in terms of the enemies of Christ. So, you know, like, we see injustice everywhere, right? We see evil happen all the time. Can we sing this song? Yes, absolutely, about that. You know, um, um, what is it? The word accuser? By the way, who is the ultimate accuser? Do you guys know that Satan, the name literally means accuser? So we can sing this about Satan. We can sing this about his kingdom. We can sing this about his evil empire in this world. May it be destroyed. May it come down to ruin. God, retribution against Satan. Retribution against evil. Right? Um, And let us not forget that the New Testament is filled with what are called imprecations. Sometimes we think Old Testament imprecations, New Testament love. That's not what, that's not it at all. Look with me to Galatians 1.8. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be what? Accursed. You know what accursed means? First of all, it just means curse. It's a fancier way to say that. It means may he be cursed to hell. May he be damned. Right? Paul is calling down damnation. For who? For anyone who would oppose the gospel, who hates Christ. Right? As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So these cursings is not set in stone. It's a warning. If anyone opposes Christ, if anyone hates God, then what he himself exacted, let it fall upon him. And I wish I had the time to go through this more thoroughly, but... The, the justice that Paul is calling upon is never out of proportion, right? So let me just go back to verse 18 because I actually think it is helpful. Paul says, uh, uh, David says, he clothed himself with cursings as his coat, right? So what is coat? A coat, like think about a cold winter night. You wrap yourself with a coat, what do you feel? You feel safe, you feel protected. That's why people curse. They're deeply insecure. They, they want to hate on all these people so it's a weapon. It's an offensive weapon to attack you, right? It's a coat, but then what does David say? May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. That is, you know what that is called? That is called poetic justice. David is saying, you wrap yourself around with cursings like a protection. Let it wrap around you and choke you and soak into your bones and fall upon you, right? And so the, the, the kind of justice and retribution that we're act, asking for is not is never disproportional, it's never vindictive, it is never hatred. And so how do we explain, for example, um, Matthew, uh, Matthew 5, all the way at the top right, col- top left column, right, where Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. He is not saying there's no such thing as retribution. He's saying never ever use retribution as an excuse for vendetta, for personal revenge. But the principle of retribution is true. God will pay back evil for evil. Or he will pay back justice for evil is a better way to put it. Does that make sense? Um, and so there's a balance in the Christian life. It's a really complex balance. On the one hand, to your personal enemies, you lay down your life, you love them. You pay back good for evil, love for hatred. But when it comes to evil and injustice and Satan, you call upon justice and retribution and, and uh, uh, maledictions, right? So it's a complex, complex mix. How do we negotiate? I don't know. Uh, uh, It's difficult. But I I think Psalm 109 is definitely helpful and instructive to us, right? So that 
Um, ultimately, I, the reason why I love the Psalms is because it forces us to confront issues that we don't want to confront. There's two ways to read the Bible. You can say parts of the Bible are flawed, uh, uninspired, not worthy of God. I'm just going to cross them out, not read them, not care about them. And that makes Christianity very compatible with our contemporary culture. But the problem is you then become God, Lord over the scriptures. Or you can say, I will accept all of scriptures. And every time I confront a scripture that doesn't seem right to me, doesn't jive well with me, like when you read about the generational curse, you say, I don't feel good. I don't like it. That's a wonderful opportunity to what? To submit yourself to scripture and try to understand, you know, and submit yourself. Because if, if the Bible is true, the Bible will always <laughs> confront culture in various ways. You know, it confronts our American individualism. It confronts our sense that we shouldn't retaliate. We sh- when Christina was in law school, we, they were talking about justice, and they're talking about how justice always includes retribution. A lot of students didn't—they felt queasy. They didn't like that. No retribution, right? Justice without retribution—that's um, our culture. But the Bible says no. It cannot be. So, any questions? Yeah, one question. How about that? Even now, for many of us, it doesn't sit well with us. We don't like it. It uh, maybe even repulses us. But um, show us, in fact, that this is the gospel. Show us, ultimately, it's about Jesus Christ, how he was betrayed by Judas, and how he was abandoned on the cross so that we can be loved and rescued by you. And ultimately, show us that you are a God who hates evil, hates injustice, and therefore we ought to hate evil and injustice too. But let us do it in a Christ-like way, laying down our lives for others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys.